Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Sabadra Jaffa joins us now, head of U.S. rate strategy at SockGen. Sabadra, for a while now, a number of weeks, you've been talking about higher yields led by the United States. Is that still your core view going into next year? Absolutely. I mean, I think if you look at all the data we've been getting, whether it be on the employment front or retail sales, it's been gangbusters, right? So in that context, you should see as the U.S. economy starts to reopen for business, yes, people aren't getting into their business clothes and going into work, but it will happen eventually when infection rates start to come down. So there's a lot, there's a decent amount of savings still left in the U.S. to be spent. So I think that that should that sort of trajectory supports you know pretty decent growth, not just into 2022 but also 2023 and beyond. So you're looking at a very strong trajectory for growth over the next several years. Yes, there are some yeah. risks on the inflation front as well as on things like uh, oil prices, which might eat into consumer spending. But broadly speaking, I think the fundamentals are strong, and that should. Uh, lead right. to modestly higher yields from here on. Subhadra, in another time and place, we were measured in our path to a restrictive monetary policy. How far away are we measured or unmeasured from being restrictive? Well, monetary policy is not restrictive at all right now, right? I mean, the, the Fed's still purchasing assets. So to me, that's providing more accommodation, not taking away accommodation, even though they're going to start tapering asset purchases. Um, and they have suggested that they're not going to be hiking rates, uh, you know, soon, at least not as of yet, even though the market's pricing in a hike as early as, as, as the June meeting. So, the, it, you know, for them to really move towards more tighter monetary policy, you're looking at, uh, sort of a pivot away from tapering uh, at, the, at the pace that they are, as well as starting to move towards, uh, you know, suggesting rate hikes, both of which hasn't happened yet. But to build on what Tom was asking for, a key debate has been whether the market is underestimating how restrictive Fed policy could get. What's your view on this at a time when right now the market is, pro- uh, is projecting a sub 2% uh, target top rate, whereas some people are saying it should be 3 to 4%? Well, I think it's really hard to know what the terminal Fed funds rate is going to be. I think the market's pricing in a very, very aggressive start t- timing for rate hikes, as well as a pace of rate hikes after the first uh, rate hike, maybe starting as early as June of next year. So I think it's really, really hard to know what, what the picture is going to be like, you know, three or four years from now, and then say, oh, the terminal Fed funds rate has to be, you know, 4%. I think we just don't have enough information. In fact, we don't even have in- enough information on what's going to happen in the next six months. I mean, most people think that inflation uh, might persist well into the middle of next year now, but the Fed doesn't is not on board with that view. So I think there's just a lot of uncertainty. Sort of extrapolating into the terminal Fed funds rate now is, is just premature. How lonely will the Federal Reserve be early next year, Sabadra? Will others join in, do you think, with this pivot? Well, first of all, we don't know if they are going to pivot because I would say the key takeaway from the FOMC meeting minutes was that they do think that uh, inflation is going to be transient and that it's going to come down uh, by the second or third quarter of next year. They still believe that going to the December meeting or beyond, they're not really going to pivot, period. So it really depends on, you know, what they think 
the uh, you know the information is by the December meeting. We get one more CPI uh, print before the December meeting, and that's that's why I think the December meeting is going to be very very crucial because you're going to get information on on employment, which we already have a pretty strong trajectory for. We're also going to get like a third data point, if you will before the December meeting, which should give them enough information if they want to, to pivot. Uh, will other global central banks follow the U.S.? Perhaps not. I think that global uh, monetary policy is very asynchronous and it's probably going to remain, remain asynchronous well through next year and the year after. So every day uh, over the past week or so, Subhaj, we've gotten about 100 different Fed officials, I'm exaggerating, speaking uh, at different forums. What's your sense about anything, if anything, we've learned that's new or moves the ball forward about how they're thinking about their rate policy? You know, it was kind of disappointing that we heard quite a few Fed speakers, but not really anything substantive or new from any of the speakers. I think some of the hawks have sort of doubled down. You're hearing from the likes of Bullard, who are saying that we should be thinking about balance sheet uh, normalization right after tapering asset purchases. He's always been calling for a sooner taper, end to taper, as well as you know faster uh, begin of uh, beginning of, of rate hikes. So it's all the same story from, from the Hawks. Um, and you're, what you're hearing now more is the ex-Fed uh, officials like the likes of Dudley and Lockhart, who are saying that the Fed should be thinking about uh, normalizing policy sooner so that they don't sort of made so there's not a policy mistake go, you know in by not raising rates soon do you listen to the former guys or the current ones sabatra for a more accurate guide of where you ones. think it's going the current ones i think yes. the former guys are more honest and open with their opinion but that's just my view sabatra thank for, you the former guys have uh, have a lot of wisdom right so True. we can we can take away information from that sabatra japa of sockgen What we do here, folks, is we try to get lucky. And you get lucky in all different ways when you book quality people, which our team recently has been on fire. And they said, let's get Megan Green, senior fellow at Harvard Kennedy School. But what you don't fo know, folks, is out of Princeton and Oxford, she was definitive on Europe and Turkey a good number of years ago. And we're thrilled Megan Green could join us at this moment as Turkey simply unravels, 1127 on Lyra. You know, Megan, I went back into the great internet and there it was, EU, Turkey, something is rotten. You're an authority on this. How rotten is Erdogan and Turkey right now? Yeah, I mean, I think the markets are really speaking for themselves. It's not just Erdogan, it's also the independence of the central bank, some or unorthodox policies, um, you know, euro-dollar bonds in Turkey. Uh, I, I think that Turkey is at the front of the line for emerging market countries that have borrowed a ton to pay for this pandemic response, uh, and that may not be able to service that debt as interest rates start rising, accommodation is withdrawn right. globally. So uh, Turkey's a real canary in the coal mine. Brazil is another one. Uh, but I think Turkey's been a, a real basket case for a long time, and it's, it's playing out in the markets now. Do you presume that Mr. Erdogan and the various Erdogans from 2002, under crisis of finance, will he turn to America or Europe? Uh, that's the big question. I think probably the U.S. is actually more important. Turkey makes no qualms about not really having any interest in joining the EU now. 
there was a spat between Turkey and EU with a migrant crisis, of course, a number of years ago. Um, but the U.S. is really what matters in terms of big financial flows. And so I think Erdogan will probably turn more towards the U.S., than it will towards Turkey. I think it will have to turn towards the IMF as well, though. Megan, Turkey is a very specific story with a very novel, perhaps, approach to economic theory when it comes to President Erdogan. There is a larger take here, though, especially with the South African RAND, which we're seeing also uh, lose favor today as it raises rates, but perhaps not as much as people were hoping. Why is it that there is this feeling in emerging markets that they have to tighten rates, but they don't want to tighten rates quite as much as as uh, a lot of the traders are expecting them and want them to. Look, a lot of emerging markets, both middle and low income countries, uh, already had a debt problem before the pandemic started. Uh, then they had to issue a lot of debt, of course, to pay for the pandemic response. So they don't really want to hike rates that much because they know that that will increase their borrowing costs. And it's all fine as long as liquidity is ample and, and borrowing costs are low. Uh, but they learned from uh, the last EM debt crisis, and so a lot of that debt has been issued in local currency debt. And so central banks are a little bit reticent to hike rates. It's also worth pointing out that, in general, while fiscal accommodation was really relaxed in 2020, most emerging markets are actually uh, going ahead and engaging in a degree of austerity for 2021 2023. And so if you have the fiscal engine pulling back and the monetary engine pulling back, it's going to make it much harder for these countries to service their debt. Uh, and also that has currency implications that makes it harder for them to pay for imports. And so I think we're going to run into a lot of trouble in terms of a sovereign debt crisis in emerging markets. Maybe not this year, but I think from next year onwards. And, and the IMF has beefed up their firepower yeah. to deal with this, but they don't necessarily have good programs for countries that kind of fall in the middle and, and need medium-term help. And this goes really to Damien Sassauer's point, how uh, the Fed is banker to the world, and they are looking not only at domestically what the policies need to be, but if they hike rates twice, which is the consensus right now among traders, at least that's what's priced into the market, what would that do? Would that trigger the sovereign debt crisis that you're talking about in the developing world? Yeah, we've seen in the past that as the Fed hike rates, borrowing costs everywhere else go up. Um, that's, that's the case for the Eurozone. That's certainly the case for emerging markets. And while uh, EM sovereigns have been better about issuing in local currencies, the private sector hasn't necessarily. Of course, it depends on which country we're speaking about. But a lot of that debt is issued uh, in U.S. dollars. And so as borrowing costs go up for the U.S., they rise everywhere else, but also there are currency implications that make it harder for a lot of EM countries to service that debt. Megan, one of the things we're seeing in this season of outlooks of 2022 in market economics, which you did at Manulife, is almost a lack of consensus. We use the C word consensus, but the bottom line is everybody's all over the map right now. Is that unusual? So it's not unusual in a pandemic. Uh, none of us really know where the economy is going unless we can work out what's happening with the virus. So that's one massive piece of uncertainty. But remember, we've never been through any of this before. And so while other economists and I can come out and say with a lot of confidence what we think will happen to something simple like inflation, we actually just don't really know. There's a ton of uncertainty around the labor market. What does the labor force participation rate look like? That has big implications for whether the labor market is tight or actually has quite a lot of slack right now. 
that feeds on into what the Fed should do. Um, there's huge uncertainty around all of this, and these are the, the basic building blocks for any kind of macro forecast. So it's unsurprising that economists are sort of all over the map. Meanwhile, Seth Carpenter of Morgan Stanley on the show earlier said that if you start to see inflation peak out in the first quarter, as the Fed is currently expecting, and then start to decelerate, that will be enough for the Fed to remain on hold for the remainder, for the duration of 2022, and wait until the first quarter of 2023 to hike rates. Do you agree that it's not necessarily the absolute level of inflation, but the, the direction uh, of travel? Yeah, I think that's probably right. Um, I also think that the Fed has sort of um, promoted their mandate on full and inclusive employment. And, and that's a real priority for them in a way it hasn't always been. And so if we do see inflation start to decelerate next year, then I think that the Fed will feel a lot less pressure to withdraw accommodation. That being said, I don't actually think we're going to see inflation decelerate at the beginning of next year. And I'm, I'm firmly in team transitory on the inflation question. But I think the supplier disruptions that we're facing now will probably persist for at least another year. Uh, and it requires not only an abatement in demand, but also it requires us to go back to buying services instead of goods. And, and that will depend very much on the virus. So that can take a while. And then, of course, it also requires us addressing some of these supply chain disruptions. I, I think that could take quite a lot longer. Um, but I do agree with Seth that if we were to see weaker inflation, the Fed would be under much less pressure to hike rates. And I think we could well end up waiting until 2023 to see rate hikes. And, and I think that would be the right call, actually, even if we don't see an abatement in inflation early next year. Interesting. In line with Morgan Stanley and TD for that matter. Megan, thank you. Megan Green of the Kroll Institute and Harvard Kennedy School out of London this morning. Another one of the great dual degrees in America is you take French at William and Mary and attach it to something else. Seth Carpenter did that with their French and Francophone Studies program, which is worldwide acclaimed. And we're thrilled that the, the gentleman from Paris could join us today. And John Farrow, I think, you know, if, if down at the Fed, John, help me here, but they speak Greek. Maybe Seth can pick up on uh, maybe, that. Maybe the French would help on the resume, along with working at the Fed, working at the Treasury. Seth, some people are saying it, and I ask this very delicately, just yeah, in case do. Mr. Yes, Gorman is watching, would you be interested, Seth, in the role that people are talking about connecting you with down at the Federal Reserve? <laughs> uh, you know, I always blush a little bit when I hear those stories. Uh, I don't personally have any information about that. If you do, uh, <laughs> let me know. But. Seth, maybe they like the idea of the call you've got for next year on the Federal Reserve. No hike. In fact, you're going for Q1 2023. Let's start there. Why Q1, Seth? Why not next year? I think that's a great question. And, you know, when I think about uh, Ellen Zentner, who's a great economist and her U.S. team, the the call on the Fed really is the derivative of the call on the U.S. economy. So the forecast for inflation, which is obviously top of mind for everyone, is that inflation is going to peak somewhere around the beginning of the year and then start to come down over the course of 2022. And I'm looking at a few things. You were talking at the at the top of the, the segment about oil prices and if there's going to be a, a reserve release there, I don't have a strong call. But looking at futures, we're somewhere at or close to the peak. If you don't have oil prices going up anymore, that inflationary pressure starts to fade away. Similarly, supply chains, our equity analysts from Asia have talked about the semiconductor shortage uh, coming to an end. So as things start to normalize, 
probably over the course of the entire year. But as things start to, to normalize with supply uh, and oil prices stop rising, then we, we, we have a forecast for inflation coming down. Listen to what Chair Powell said at the last press conference. He said he expects inflation to fall, but not until Q2 or Q3. So if we're right and inflation does fall and maybe even starts in the first quarter of the year, that's going to give them a bit more breathing room uh, relative to what I think a lot of the market's looking at. And then the other part of their mandate, employment, we've got a forecast for the labor force participation rate, especially for prime age workers, to do what it does in every expansion, which is to rise. It's already been doing that over the past several months on that. And if that continues, then they get to reconsider those two conditions for a rate lift off what's going on with inflation and what's going on with. Okay. So, Seth, normalizing, though, is not normal, as you pointed out. The idea of the inflation rate peaking and then coming down still does not leave us with a comfortable inflation rate for the Fed to just completely do nothing other than follow its relatively slow taper. What gives you confidence that they will be able to push back against the Bill Dudleys of the world who are saying, guys, you are so far behind the curve and you are risking a huge policy error? I mean, I think there's got to be very strong and very lively debate. And so, you know, as being <clears throat> at this desk and trying to think about what's likely to happen, I, I have to go back to uh, Powell's words. He said he doesn't expect inflation to materially fall until Q2 or Q3. That to me sounds like let's let the taper run its course. And then after that, start to think about uh, when, when, when to talk about rate hikes. Seth, I look at all this and the debate that we framed on Bloomberg surveillance over the last couple of days. Our listeners, our viewers, their heads are spinning over fancy guys like you, over <laughs> what's the key determinant in the fear of inflation. And the, this is the Bloomberg business we cover talks about. And I'm going to ask you this as clearly as I can. Kellogg Le Co Coefficient Critique. <laughs> what is the what is the Kelly Le coefficient critique? See who play oh Kelly Le coefficient critique. Very, very well done, Tom. Um, I think there is a massive disconnect between the way that macroeconomists talk about inflation and the way that everyday real people talk about uh, inflation. Uh, people who are in the course of their everyday life are not running regressions. They're not sort of scanning the data to see what's going on. They're paying attention to how much money they're paying to fill up their gas tank. They're paying attention to how much money they're paying at the grocery store when they buy food. It seems entirely uh, reasonable for the average person to be to be feeling the high prices that are going on here. And I think therein lies a real big communication challenge. I think a, 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 that communication challenge might actually get compounded over time because the Fed very intentionally has set a target for PCE inflation. Markets in general look at CPI inflation. They're measured differently. There are conceptual differences between them. The gap between those two could actually get much larger over the course of the year. And so there's a real challenge there, translating inflation as macroeconomists who are studying central banks think about it versus inflation and what it costs for, an every, uh, for everyday activities for regular people. Seth, do you promise to come back? I, promise. I would like to come back every time I'm invited. Thank you, sir. Yeah, but he can't come back within the window. Now. He can't come back within the window. <laughs> What's that, Tom? The blackout period? Yeah, the blackout period. <laughs> we can't talk then. Yeah. Seth, it's good Court, to catch up. That's when clients want to hear from <laughs> yeah. me most. Yeah. I bet. I bet. <laughs> Seth, run. Thank you for promising to come back. Seth Carpenter yeah. there from Morgan Stanley.
Let's pick it up. We've got some wonderful guests today on economics, and we go to someone incredibly skilled here on market economics. Stephen Stanley is with Amherst Pierpont, and their chief economist, and is really good at the granularity. Steve Stanley, I want you to extrapolate the reality of John Deere, and as Greg Vellier reports this morning, 10% inflate a wage lift, and then the next year a 5% infl- uh, wage lift, and the year after that a 5% wage lift. That smells like inflation to me. Can the union? inflation fall over to non-union America? Well, absolutely. I mean, the labor market is incredibly tight right now, and I think workers realize that they have the leverage. And so you're not only seeing it with some of these strike actions, but also um, people sitting out waiting until they get an offer that they uh, that they like. So, yeah, I mean, I think workers right now have the, um, you know, have the leverage and, and they're right. going to push it. You know, I look at Target and Amazon together, bordering up on 2 million employees, and I would suggest at the margin, those are almost union-like employers just because of their mass, almost General Motors of 1935 or 1955 as well. Are we more organized than we think we are in our labor markets? That's an interesting question. I mean, I I think in some aspects that's probably true. Um, These big companies or big employers, I should say, uh, have definitely, you know, responded with kind of big moves in terms of wages, uh, raising the minimum wage that they pay or the average wage that they pay in a manner that is somewhat akin to uh, a collective bargaining type situation. Um, You know, maybe on some other parameters, whether it's, you know, working conditions or uh, other collective bargaining type issues, you know, maybe not so much. So it's, maybe it's a bit of a hybrid. Stephen, does the Fed have time to wait for this labor market to heal, to get back to where we were before this pandemic? The Fed is way behind the curve right now. I mean, the the fact that we're still buying assets is, you know, it's just, it's a problem. And so they're going to, I think they're going to end up moving quite a bit faster than they think. They're going to, at some point, they're going to have to accelerate the pace of tapering. Um, And I think we are going to get rate hikes next year. Um, but it's going to take a while for the Fed to catch up. I mean, they are definitely, and they, look, they wanted to be behind the curve to some degree. I mean, this is the, what the new framework stipulates. So we're getting kind of a great experiment. Um, but the world looks very different than the way we thought it looked in 2018, 2019, when the Fed developed this new framework. Well, let's talk about how much has changed. As things stand, that QE program is set to run down by the middle of next year. Run me through when you think that's set to end and when the next rate hike actually comes after that. Sure. So I think by early next year, assuming that the inflation numbers continue to, uh, to be very firm, which I expect, um, that they will have to accelerate the pace of tapering. So as you said, if they just maintain the current pace, they would be done by June. I think they'll probably finish March or April, something like that. And then I, I have the first rate hike penciled in for June, um, you know, with a couple more before the end of the year. Stephen, what's the trigger for them to move to a more hawkish framework as you're talking about? Well, I think, you know, clearly the inflation numbers are going to be propelling them forward. And I think on top of that, we are seeing um, good progress in the labor market. And I think the, 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 the shoe that is left to drop in terms of the labor market is labor force participation. And people have been kind of waiting, you know, there was the end of the unemployment benefits, um, the beginning of school, uh, the, the um, you know, calming down a bit of the pandemic. So there are a number of events that people were waiting for in the fall that they thought might change the equation for labor force participation. And the, the next few months are gonna be really key on that. 
I think either we're going to get a big influx of people back into the job market, and those people are mostly going to find work very quickly given the number of job openings and how desperate firms are to staff up, or we're going to find that people are hanging back um, for longer than, than expected, in which case the labor market just remains tight. I think in either case, um, the Fed is going to have to conclude that the, you know, the, the work is mostly done on the labor market. I think we're going to be at something approximating full employment um, by next spring. Which becomes uh, really the main debate that I see into next year, which is what is the terminal policy rate that is appropriate for the new economy, the post-pandemic reality that we're looking at? And we heard from Bill Dudley of the New York, uh, formerly of the New York Fed, who said he thinks it could be three to four percent, that this is something more persistent when it comes to inflation and longer lasting. Do you agree that the Fed is not only going to hike more aggressively, but has a much higher target to hit to normalize this economy? Yeah, funny you should bring that up. That's something I've, I'm actually uh, writing about right now. I've got something in the works on that. I think if you look at the adjustment that has been made in the markets over the last several months, there's been a big adjustment in terms of the date of liftoff and what happens at the beginning of the rate cycle. But if you look further out um, at, at various uh, money market mm -hmm. futures, what you see is that the markets still expect the Fed to end this cycle um, below 2%. And so I think that is potentially the next shoe to drop. If we start to see rate hikes uh, next year, in the second half of next year, and inflation is still running well above the Fed's target, people are gonna start to think a little bit more seriously about that scenario that, uh, that Bill Dudley and others have laid out. Um, and I think, you know, it, it, if the Fed says that neutral is two and a half, and inflation is already running well above target and, and it doesn't come all the way back the way mm -hmm. that uh, a lot of Fed officials think, then, I, you know, I think that's the point at which people are going to start to wonder, well, hey, maybe we are going to have to move into restrictive territory. Steve, the equation is Y equals C plus I plus G as in government uh, plus something to do with net, uh, net exports on the back end. The people pushing against your view say government will slow down, that the fiscal drag will be tangible as well. Discuss that. Do you buy it? Um, I, I think it depends on how you define fiscal policy. So if you define fiscal policy by what passes, then that would be true. Um, but I'm not sure that's the right way to look at it. The, the way I would look at it is it, it, all of the fiscal largesse that we've seen over the past 18 or so months, um, for the most part, is sitting on household balance sheets still. Uh, it, it was all saved. You know, household balance sheets show excess savings relative to pre-pandemic uh, levels in the neighborhood of three trillion. So most of those rebate checks and unemployment benefits and all the rest are still waiting to be spent. Now it won't all be spent at once, but I do think that fiscal policy in that sense is gonna be continuing um, to provide a tailwind to growth in 2022. Stephen, this was really interesting. Thank you, sir. Stephen Stanley there of Amherst Pierpont. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.